0: Hi, this is author and editor Brian Thomas Schmidt and you're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast.
1: Authors, agents, publishers, and editors, oh my. We here at the Grim Tidings Podcast want the show to highlight all aspects of genre fiction publishing by bringing our listeners awesome guests who can give us a peek into their professional contributions within the industry. Because believe it or not, it actually takes more than authors to bring a fantastic book to the market. It takes a myriad of people with talents in their own right, and our hope is to inform and entertain our listeners by featuring these talented folks by finding out how they do what they do and why they do it. Today's guest is no exception as both an author and Hugo-nominated editor of Adult and Children's Speculative Fiction. His debut novel, The Worker Prince, and the sequel, The Returning, are hailed as brisk science fiction full of rich characters and settings and breathes dynamic new life into the space opera genre. His short fiction has appeared in various publications, including Residential Aliens, Tales of the Talisman, Digital Dragon Magazine, and more. Our guest has also published children's books, including 102 More Hilarious Dinosaur Jokes for Kids and Abraham Lincoln, Dinosaur Hunter. In addition to writing, our guest also operates as both a freelance and house publishing editor and a mighty fine editor at that. He currently serves as a development and copy editor for Kevin J. Anderson's Wordfire Press, editing such authors as Tracy Hickman, Mike Resnick, Frank Herbert, and more. He's also an anthology editor for Bayon Books, editing authors such as Ben Bova, Elizabeth Moon, and Larry Correa. He was also the first editor for Andy Weir's The Martian, now a Hollywood blockbuster, directed by Ridley Scott. Our guest has also edited numerous anthologies, including Shattered Shields as co-editor with Jennifer Brozek, also Space Battles, Full Throttle Space Tales number 6, Beyond the Sun, and Raygun Chronicles Space Opera for a New Age. His newest anthology, Mission Tomorrow, featuring new stories of space exploration, was released in November from Bayon Books. From Ottawa, Kansas, the Grim Tidings podcast proudly welcomes Mr. Brian Thomas Schmidt to the show. Brian, thank you for hanging out, sir.
0: Oh, I'm supposed to talk now? I'm sorry, i think it's editing your introduction. <laughs> I feel like I'm working. Hi, how are you?
1: Oh, we're fine, man. Thanks so much for taking the time to uh, come on the show and uh, share your wisdom with us today. It's it's an honor, sir. Oh,
0: thank you. I hope I actually have wisdom to offer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> There's no doubt, Brian, that you have a, a vast pool of literary knowledge of which our short time together will only begin to scratch the surface. So first, let's talk about that new anthology from Band that just dropped in November. It's called Mission Tomorrow. Tell us about the new anthology and what readers can expect from the stories within.
0: The basic premise of the anthology was, in in an age where NASA is no longer the only game in town, what would space travel look like? It's near-future space exploration in the sense that, you know, with NASA being defunded by various presidents... But in particular recently, the rise of private space travel, uh, companies coming up and doing things, everybody from Virgin Galactic to various others. There's going to be opportunities to go to space in ways that perhaps are not strictly through NASA, including going with the Russians and other things. And so this was an imagination of what are some of those things going to look like from You know, private and corporate space travel to perhaps uh, other countries doing space travel. And so we've got 19 stories by various top authors that explore various aspects of that. One of the stories was up for an award, The Race for Arcadia, which is set in Russia. It's by um, Alex Schwartzman. It happens to be the first story ever written going to a particularly new planet that they just discovered that has Earth-like qualities. Literally, it was um, something that he wanted to put in there that we basically were able to add into the story and copy edits. Gardner Dozois just chose uh, one of the stories in Panic Town by Michael Flynn for his year's best. So we've been getting rave reviews from everybody. So I think you you know we're, we're talking about a lot of really good fun. Stories here. So uh, there's probably something for everybody in there. There's everything from comedy to drama, murder mystery to hard science in and, and most of them. There's definitely stories about astronauts. It's a lot of fun.
1: Excellent. And you're really kind of the first science fiction focused author that I think we've really had on the show. Most of our authors have dabbled in science fiction, but mainly um, write fantasy. But you're kind of the first. Uh, hardcore kind of science fiction guy that we've brought on the show, so we're definitely going to your brain on, on the sci-fi end of things. But it sounds like this anthology is really kind of a uh, sci-fi buffet, so to speak, of storytelling.
0: Well, it's definitely, I mean, it's clearly at the core of science fiction, as as, as a couple of the reviewers have said. I mean, it... That's exactly what I, I try to do one core sci fi anthology a year. I'm kind of with Gardner Dozois. We, 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 Gardner says all the time that, you know, he points out that there's not enough core sci fi out there. And I, I agree with him. And core sci fi is where it started for me. So that's the kind of stuff I really enjoy doing. And this anthology just, you know, got me so excited about science fiction again. Mm-hmm. Not that I wasn't before, but just kind of renews that childhood energy that you have where you just kind of just. Bouncing off the walls looking for everything you could find to read and that kind of thing. And that's, that for me was, you know, hopefully we're going to get to do another mission tomorrow. Mission Mars or Mission something. And if not, I'll hopefully do do some other core sci-fi anthology.
1: And that's really the mark of great storytelling. If it's a story that reinvigorates your love of the genre, then all the better, right?
0: Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, you, I obviously am picking stories I like. It's editorial taste is the ultimate arbiter. So hopefully I put together an anthology that other people like. The first thing they have to satisfy is my own joy, uh, stories that I'm going to be proud to put in my book.
2: As a person putting together an
0: anthology,
2: what is the process that you go through as you're selecting the stories that you want to be in the final version?
0: Well, you want variety. Now, the thing is, we have a very diverse crowd for science fiction and fantasy. And I'm not, there's of course racial and socioeconomic diversity, there's diversity from what countries people come from, different parts of the world, different languages they speak, different cultures, there's diversity of male and female, there's diversity of LGBT, but there's also diversity in that there are people that that like dark, there are people who like light, there are people who like hard and soft science fiction, hard science fiction being that which has real science as a core of the story, as opposed to soft science fiction, where it hints at things that aren't always really scientific, but sound that way. So when I'm putting a book together, I don't want everything to be the same, because I want a broad audience for my book. So I've got to think about that diversity when I'm picking stories. I want it to Mm -hmm. be represented, but I'm not working on quotas, so I pick the best Stories in the end. The goal is when you invite authors, you keep that diversity in mind so that you're going to get a diverse pool to pick from, and then you get the best stories and you end up with a diverse book. That's pretty much how I approach it. Now, uh, in this case, there were stories, for example, I had for some reason I got a lot of stories where people were murdered for this one. <laughs> and so I was like, it's not a murder story anthology. So there were a couple good stories that I know, like Jennifer Brozak had a good one. I turned it down solely because I had two other stories that dealt with murder and they were from my headliners. And you know, headliners are kind of the marquee names that you put in there that help people come find the book. You know, knowing there's a Ben Bova story or or whatever, they're more likely to pick it up. And so, you know, if you if you if Rob submitted me a, a story that was too similar to somebody else's and Ben Bova sends me, sends me the same, you know, a similar story, Rob's probably going to lose out. Damn. Bayon buys the book on the co- on condition of expecting to have some of those people in there, so I've got to put Bova in there, you know, that kind of thing. Unless Bova pulled his story, which I can't imagine Ben Bova needing to ever do that, but yeah. So, yeah, I think it's the kind of thing where I'm looking for variety and diversity in themes as well, in plots as well. Those kind of things, as well as diversity, as far as um, you know, cultural and other things.
2: Is there any aspect of you mentioned having the headliners? Is there any aspect of balancing out the anthology with bigger names and then people that you think should be
0: more well known? I typically have nineteen to twenty stories in an anthology, sometimes more, and so I will invite eight to ten. Headliners. That's usually about all my budget can afford. And everybody else comes into my pool at six cents per word. And then I'll get 20 or 30 more writers to send me stuff. And among those will be new people that I've heard of that have hardly had any pro sales that I think need a shot. But both of those people will be people who I know have made some sales who are up and comers, people that should be better now, people that yeah. are building their name and people who are going to be the bigger names of the future, probably. You know, so over half the book is going to be that and so within that, there'll be a variety of different authors with different levels of um, publication credits. Now, when it comes to editing those those headliners in
1: the anthology, is there a lot of content or line editing that you have to do for those stories for for the bigger or the smaller guys? I mean, what's what's the challenges of uh, editing th- those stories that are submitted to you for for these uh, anthologies?
0: It depends. There are some people whose work needs a lot of. Um, Line edits and, and copy edits, rarely do I do any developmental edit- editing with the uh, with the, the bigger names. Although with Mike Flynn, I did one major edit, and that was he had started the story, I felt, in a place that felt very info-dumpy. And I made him move one paragraph of action up to the front to start the story, and, and then the rest of it kind of acted as a, okay, now we've seen these people, here's where we are kind of thing. You know what I mean? I mean, it, it was like, he got us into a scene where there's dialogue and there's all this interaction and there's something going on that feels very dramatic and then slowed the story down and introduced us to the world and all that stuff as a result. And that worked real well, obviously because, I mean, he got picked for the year's best. That was the only change of any significance that I made to one of the headliner stories in this, and that was Mike Flynn. And when I when I pointed it out, he was like, yeah, that's, you're right, that works so much better. So... That was an awesome privilege to be able to do that. Most of the time, I'm just doing line edits. There's also people that send me stories who are so freaking clean. Like Elizabeth Moon and Sean McGuire, I, I have to find an excuse to make a change so I can <laughs> say I edited the book, you know, edited them, you know. They, for whatever reason, don't have the typical amount of typos and stuff that other people have. I mean, just really clean stuff. So I don't know how Sean and, and uh, Elizabeth do it, but I, it, it's kind of intimidating for me, because my I know my stuff's not that clean. So it varies, is my point.
1: So you're involved with WordFire Press, you're involved with Bayon, and you're also a freelance editor. So you edit, 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 all the live long day, it seems.
0: Well, let's just put it this way. I'm a freelance editor, period. And I happen to freelance on a regular basis for WordFire, and freelance for Bayon as an anthology editor on a regular basis. How did you get into the editing game, Brian? I like helping people, and I'm good with words, so... I had some people ask me to give them some feedback on stories, just like a beta reader, like anybody else, and discovered I kind of had a little bit of a knack for it. And then I was getting great ideas for anthologies. I was being mentored by Mike Resnick, who's one of the best anthology editors out there, and has done 60 or 70 of the things over his career. And I had an idea that he thought was great, but he thought a lot of people should be involved. And it, it ended up, it's still one anthology I have not made, but we're going to make it at some point. And I started pitching that around and was pitching to, to this publisher online on Twitter. And he suggested I do something in his Full Throttle Space Tales series. But he didn't want to do that book. He wanted to do something more action-oriented. Uh, he, had, he had had space grunts. So I said, well, what about Space Battles or something along those lines? And he said, yeah, that's great. So that's what we did, Space Battles. So Mike did a story for me for that, and uh, then I had a bunch of up-and-comers, new stories. That was the only non-paid, shares-only anthology I ever did. Um, we paid Resnick, and and them, that was, they were the only people that got paid. Uh, the rest of us all took shares, and it basically went from there. I started editing for a friend who was a historian in El Paso named Leon Metz, he wanted me to help him polish up his book, and it was historical, which was a lot of work. Because when you're fixing stuff there, you have to be really careful because you don't want to fix something that's historically accurate in a quote or something. You know, you it's not like editing regular dialogue. You know, if they actually said that or it's recorded that way, you can't fix it even if it sounds terrible. So I did that for him and seemed to have a knack for it, and then started to get other opportunities here and there, and then it kind of went from there.
2: As a freelance editor, you you take on any clients that. That say, hey, here's some money.
0: Let me put it this way. I don't like assholes. And so I won't work with ah. assholes. <laughs> that is my big standard. You know, there are people who are jerks. Okay, there are people mm-hmm. who... Your ego is checks that they can't really afford to cash. Or ego rights checks that they can't afford to cash. That's a better <laughs> way to put it. I try to stay away from those people. But you don't always know. So basically, yeah, you can hi- anybody can hire me. I'm going to check out your work. I use, always look at samples before I agree to it. And I'm going to interact with you a little bit to see how you push back to try to get a sense of how receptive you're going to be to edits and changes. And that way, you know, if you kind of bristle at it, like, well, you know, most people are like, hey, if that's what it needs, I can do that. Those are the people you know are going to be good. The People who are like, "Uh, well, let's just see what you think once you've read the whole thing. Then you get a sense that here's somebody who's not really open to changing. And depending on how hard they push back, I may say yes or no.
1: Yeah, we had Michael R. Fletcher on the show uh, in the past, and he had a blog, blog article that came out recently talking about the editorial process. And from his standpoint, um, and I tend to agree with him, he thinks that uh, an editor, if they're worth their weight in gold, should eviscerate your manuscript when it comes to to, to making edits and changes and things like that. Is, is your philosophy a, a or do you carry a pretty heavy red pen on a manuscript are you looking to to make a lot of changes or what's kind of like that balance between author and editor and and finding that balance in and making those edits well i would call myself
0: a sympathetic editor because i'm a writer too And I know what it's like to be on the other side of it. But I have a reputation at this point that if you're going to want to put my name on your book, it's going to have to meet certain standards. And I have it in my contract. There's a clause that basically says you do not get to put my name on your book unless I give you permission in writing. Which means that if I got a client who's difficult to work with and doesn't take any of my edits, my name doesn't go on their book. (laughs) They can't legally put it on there. And if they do, I'll send them a cease and desist. You can. I don't care if you printed a thousand copies. You can recall all of them. And you could take it out. Hopefully, it never happens like that. But you know what I mean.
2: And if people are assholes, you have to do that kind of thing. <laughs>
0: well, you know, we do have to. We do have to control the asshole population. It's kind of important. Yeah, it's I mean, important. We, don't, we don't want to go so far as to have internment camps for them or anything, but no. we might be tempted at times. <laughs> no, I. You know. You know. Seriousness. I. You know. The the thing is, you've got people who basically aren't hire an editor because it's the thing to do, but they're not prepared for that process. And then you've got people who feel like they're ready for certain kind of things and they can't for others. Most of the time when these regular people, non- assholes, say no, <laughs> it's they can't figure out how to do it. And so they're just overwhelmed with the idea of it. And, okay, that's fine. You can only make use of what you can actually benefit from. So that's legitimate, okay? But when you get somebody who is pushing back at something that you know is industry standard is the kind of thing that's not a negotiable change typically, that's when it becomes really difficult. Andy Weir, for example, he won't mind me saying this because he's told me this. He did not have any real heavy descriptions on the settings of any of the NASA scenes in The Martian. It was pretty much just dialogue and a few action cues here and there. We're in trouble, so-and-so said from the control panel at Mission Control. Pretty much, that's the the, the kind of setting descriptions you got. So I said, You've got to put in descriptions and tell people what does Mission Control look like, where, you know, those kind of things. He goes, Oh, the people that are reading my book that are my fans all know what that looks like. They don't need all that. I'm like, Well, yeah, but, you know, you're trying to do this book for a broader audience. They do. Uh, he didn't end up doing that. And later, when he sold it to Crown and made a buttload of money doing so, <laughs> he came back to me and he said, All those edits. That, I didn't do that you told me to do? Yeah, they made me do them. I said, yeah, but they paid you hell of a lot of money, money to do it rather than you paying me. So you came out ahead. You know? Uh, so, I mean, you know, that's gratifying because you know that you're steering people in the right direction. And at the time, you know, I'm sure probably description was harder for him. And he's he's come a long way as an author, really. It's still a great book. I think I also pointed out that all the characters sounded alike. The, the PR lady uh, cursed a bit too much for a PR lady of a family-friendly place like NASA. He really had the Watney, Mark Watney voice down strong, but all of his characters started sounding a bit too much like Mark Watney at certain points, and I think that that's something he could have fixed. I don't know that he ever really fixed it in the book. They fixed it in the movie. They definitely did, but they had actors to help with that part. Whatever the case, uh, there are things like that that you know when I'm working. The difference is when I'm working for you, you're the boss. When I'm working for a publisher, they're the boss. So I could push harder with a publisher. With Wordfire, they don't put it into production until I say it's ready to go. And they trust my judgment on that. So basically, I'm saying, no, we need to fix this. Now, it depends who I'm editing. I can only push so hard back against, you know, Alan Dean Foster or some of these guys. But, you know, with the younger writers, I have a lot more control and of course when i push back against frank herbert he just rolls over in his grave and says whatever i'm sleeping (laughs) so you know i mean it's kind of difficult there but um, anyway now
1: you're an author as well your debut novel was the worker prince and it's followed by the sequel the returning pretty rave reviews uh, some nice blurbs on on those titles tell us a little bit about that series and how that came together
0: well i was like 14 or 15 i had the idea of doing moses like star wars so i wanted to tell the moses story of star wars and I had come up with an idea of this prince and this evil lord named Lord Zalivar. And pretty much the name Lord Zalivar and the name Sol, which is the name of, of Daviri's father, are the only two things that stayed with me from that. You know, I had this idea. I had written out a whole bunch of stuff that got lost somewhere along the way. And so when I finally decided to write a science fiction book, I came back to that and picked it up and started writing it. It was a lot less biblical than what The original concept had been probably, I didn't want to do all the things that had been done in the Bible storyline. I wanted to kind of modify things and use elements of it, but use it as a framework and drop a few things. Because how do you tell the Moses story and make it interesting if everybody knows the story? So kind of modified some things here and there. And I wanted it to be fun, the kind of movie that Star Wars A New Hope was. I wanted people to you know really have a blast reading it. And I put a lot of you know references into some of the movies that influenced me, including Star Wars: A New Hope, Battlestar Galactica. There's Superman. There's tributes both in plot elements and then in little lines of dialogue snippets, little put here and there that I borrow that I put in there that, that totally work in context to my thing, but are dead on a line out of one of those movies. You know, so if you know those <laughs> movies, you'll say, "Oh my God, there's a Star Wars line," and it works in my story so well that you know it's not weird, but at the same time, it makes you smile.
2: Could you give us an example of one?
0: This bickering is pointless. <laughs> That's the famous line that, that Tarkin said in, uh, in, in the first Star Wars. Not the famous lines, but little more obs- more obscure lines, but lines that are, you know, if you're a fan, you know those lines. Little Easter eggs, basically. And so the first book is about um, Davi discovering that he, he's he been raised a prince, but he was actually born from his people's enemy. The people he's grown up thinking are his his people are actually enemies with these other people. He actually was born one of the enemy. And he was secretly adopted because his mother was unable to have children and wanted to have children and brought into the palace. And now he's discovered it, and he's discovered he actually has another family out there. And as he starts to explore who he is and figure out what that means for him, he starts to uncover things about how these people have been treated and what's really going on that don't match with the history books and the and the the line of history that he's been taught, the official line, so to speak. And he starts to question it and say, "Wait a minute, is it right what we're doing here?" And these seem like decent people. And how do I not care about them? They're my family. And it leads to conflict with his uncle, who happens to be Lord Zalivar, the uh, High Lord Counselor, who rules the the system, so to speak. You know, ends up basically helping the, these workers fight for freedom against the Brawley Alliance, which is where the people that he's grown up with. And in, in book two, there's a process of trying to be uh, assimilated into society and accepted as real, you know, as equals and various things, and then struggling with, with some people who want to stop that, some people who want to go back to the old ways, uh, racism and different things. There's terrorism uh, elements to things. It touches on a lot of themes that are going on in the world today, really, in a lot of ways. Uh, everything from the ideological bigotry that we often see going on where people are just dehumanizing and attacking anybody who doesn't share their political point of view on either side to the whole, um, like I said, the terrorism issue and so on and so forth. Not in a heavy-handed way, but these are these are things that are going on in the story that are part of the themes of the book, that you, you can see the parallels. The parallels are not hidden. Uh, and then there's the third book, The Exodus, and that book will be out sometime in probably the spring or summer of 2016, and, and a new version of The Returning will be out somewhere in between. That would conclude the trilogy.
1: Excellent. So it's it's a planned trilogy of three books, so uh, book three will be out sometime next year. And then you said you're, you're having a re-release of book
0: one? Re-release of book one came out in November and it is called The Worker Prince Author's Definitive Version uh, Originally the book had been on Barnes & Noble years Best, and it had gotten real well and we sold a lot of copies very quickly but it was from a micro press, and it was a Christian micropress press and because of some of the Christian themes in the story they published it as a Christian fiction book I really meant it for general market and so I went through and revised it uh, because I realized I'm a better writer now and I wanted book one and book two to match the writing style of book three which I had written more recently and uh, because the book two launch, the press had kind of fallen apart, and the book two launch never really kind of made any kind of splash. The series had kind of died there. We had never gone on with it, so I went back and said, "I want to finish this series and I want to do it right." So I rewrote book one and added about eight to ten thousand words. I toned down some of the overt religious references that might give anybody trouble. I hadn't had a whole lot of complaints, but people certainly were were steered away from it because they thought it was Christian only fiction which is not my intent not what I ever written wrote it for so I fixed that and then I I revised that and it came out like I said eight eight to ten thousand words more and we put it out as the author definitive uh, version we're going to have a new version of the returning I don't think I'll be doing near as much work on that I'll probably be polishing the prose. there's one plot element I'd like to fix a little bit I I addressed some of the issues in the worker prints that had been criticized in some of the reviews So I'm going to do the same thing with it returning and then we'll put the Exodus out and it'll be the brand new book with which nobody's seen or reviewed before.
2: It's interesting that you're you're going back and making some changes and kind of making it more uh, stylistically similar to your most recent uh, release. Uh, My question kind of connects to to that in a way. As a writer, I've always been curious about writers who are also editors Is there a strong desire to go back and edit something that's already been released or uh, I know some writers, they have this pang of panic when they release something into the world and they go,
0: ah, shit, I should have changed that or
2: (laughs) something. Do do you feel like there's any element of that?
0: You know, Philip, I I honestly think that most good writers, it's never done. It's just the best you can do at the time. Yeah, yeah. And so there's always stuff you're going to look back on and say, oh, wow, boy, that was a young writer. Then, man, I, I I would do it totally different now. I've talked with Robert Silverberg about this quite a few times, and he talks about that, too. And sometimes you have to fight the urge to fix it, and sometimes it's okay. In this case, we were doing a whole new launch and a whole new release for a whole different market, and it was kind of like, okay, you know, I'm a much better writer now. Than this. There are a lot of rookie mistakes in there that I could fix. Things I could polish, you know, some of the things that came across as head hopping that I, you know, I could fix all that. There's elements of the story that didn't quite make as much sense as I wanted. I could fix that. So I felt empowered to do that. And then it makes the book new and it makes the book more special in some ways. And I'm prouder of it. There became a certain point where I was like, you know, God, I love this story, but I sure wish I'd told it better. I wouldn't feel that way about every book. But this one, I really did. So it was a chance for me to go back and really fix that. Because I'm a professional now, and I'm at a point in my career where I got the Hugo nomination and various things. and So I'm kind of, you know, certainly held to a different standard. I really wanted to at least make a better showing with my, my book. So I allowed myself the luxury of going back and rewriting. Every time I reread something to mine, I can always edit it to death if I want to. I can always. I can't shut the editing thing off. You know, I was sitting there literally editing your, your page before the thing and i was you know i made it like a joke but the truth is i was actually doing it Rob, Rob will tell, i was editing his introduction oh yeah no 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 no, 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 no. It i'm finding typos in there that i'm fixing even as Rob as in, in, in so i can't shut it off it's just what i do it's part of how i think once i get into the revision mode that's where my head goes when i'm writing i don't do as much of that in the actual writing process i do some of it but not to the same degree because I'm using a different, different half of my brain, and I'm kind of focused on that half of my brain at the time. There's always that temptation, but I think, I think you have to find a balance.
2: So, so as an editor, what, what do you think about things such as like uh, NaNoWriMo, where it's basically write a bunch of uh, stuff that spews out of your <laughs> head
0: in a month? When I was writing the work of Prince originally, I was writing like 3600 words a day. On a regular basis. Well. So I could easily write. A 90,000 word book in a month. At that pace. I don't write at that pace much anymore. Because I'm so busy with editing jobs. And I don't have that kind of time. To just sit and write all day long. So for me. You know. The thing about NanoWriteMo. I think it's, it's advantageous. For people who need the encouragement. To dedicate their time to it. But for me. I'm dedicating time every day. To my craft into this business and i don't always write every day but i i edit every single day and i'm doing more writing i'm getting back into more writing now so i'm doing more writing every day to me i i write six days a week when i'm writing i i only give myself one day off when i'm editing it's the same way i I edit six days a week i only give myself one day off this is my job this is how i make my living i need the discipline if you don't if you don't if i let discipline lacks. Like right now I'm not as physically active as I should be and it's affecting my discipline in my writing and editing and I've got to get back on track with that. I find if I have lax discipline in one area it bleeds over to the other because the same excuses start getting applied, you know. Oh, I don't have to do that today. Oh, I don't I'm not in the mood. You know, all these different excuses we have. So I think it's 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 really important to have that discipline and do it every day. So if Inner Mo can encourage people by showing them the kind of progress they can make. If they had that discipline, that's a good thing. Do I think that most people are going to put out a decent book in that time? No, I don't. Their, their books are going to need editing. They're going to need rewriting. Now, a long-time experienced author who's nationally published, a best-selling author, might be able to put out a decent book in that time. But they're not going to write a they're, – they're, unless they're writing at that 3,600-word-a-day pace – they're probably not going to, at 50,000 words, they're not going to r- write a finished novel. In most markets, 50,000 words is not enough. It would be like a novella. It would be a long novella. I think the romance market and occasionally the Western market will publish books that length. And then, of course, there's Tor.com, which is just doing a, a novella division headed by Lee Harris, that, who's a great editor, by the way. They're doing actual books of these novellas that they're putting out. So they're not just doing them online on tour.com or doing eBooks of them. They're actually putting out physical books of novellas. So th- that's, that's an exception to the rule that they're doing some of that. But for the most part, it's a short novel and you're going to need to expand it and revise it to sell it.
2: So you've done uh, not only science fiction, but you've written children books also. Uh, one of the titles that obviously <laughs> stood out to me was Abraham Lincoln Uh, Dinosaur hunter. Uh, What other U.S. presidents or historical figures would you like to see uh, hunting prehistoric creatures?
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Nobody's ever asked me that. That's hilarious. I don't have a vision of anybody else out hunting uh, prehistoric creatures. I have... A vision of a few of them being hunted by prehistoric. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a few, or people. maybe, or maybe future the current presidents. president. I would, I would, I, I. Well, never mind. They'll probably lock me up if I actually get <laughs> it. Never mind. Um, I, I can tell you that Abraham Lincoln Dinosaur Hunter came about. It was a publisher who brought me in. It was his idea mixed with my idea. I wanted to do a dinosaur book for kids. I'd already done the dinosaur joke book. He wanted Abraham Lincoln. And so he went home and this was the time when this Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter was out in the theaters and he said, oh, Abraham Lincoln dinosaur hunter. And I said, oh, yeah, we can do that. And it's, you know, it's cool. The Abraham Lincoln presidential library has it in their collection. I mean, how cool is that, right? (laughs) Wow, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, it's supposed to be the first in a series, but it hasn't really taken off. Um, I've had a couple agents look at it and said they think it has really broad appeal and Tamara Pierce has told me I need to send it to Scholastic or something. So I'm currently working on sending that out and finding a bigger publisher. And then hopefully I'll get to do more books in that series. But but basically the idea was to do something for boys with a lot of action for those boys that would rather play video games so they might actually read a book. And so it's 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 you know ten year old Abe and his mentor Davy Crockett who is in his twenties actually gets sent accidentally back with this wacky time machine that they don't even think is really going to work by this teenage quirky teenage inventor actually go back in time to the dinosaur edge and have to learn how to survive. So they spend a lot less time killing and hunting dinosaurs than really the title implies, but, you know, (laughs) they're learning survival skills while they're back there in the past because they don't really have much choice. You know, Davy Crockett's, to be honest, Davy Crockett's gun's not going to do much against dinosaurs. Yeah,
2: I would imagine (laughs) T-Rex would just... What what would a T Rex do if Davy Crockett shot at? Well, yeah, maybe that's the next one.
0: The T Rex is pissed and and, and, and going <laughs> to keep coming. But the 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 saber tooth tiger on the other hand could be harmed yeah. a little bit easier.
1: I think it might be cool to see like Genghis Khan dinosaur hunter. That might be fun. Maybe George
2: Washington saber tooth tiger hunter. Ooh, that too.
0: I'm thinking you know the the most obvious choice is Teddy Roosevelt dinosaur hunter because Teddy Roosevelt uh, was yeah. Teddy was badass. I'll give you that. And he's like. Screw the gun. I've got my big stick. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Teddy and his big stick fighting dinosaurs.
1: So, Brian, no doubt you've uh, you've made your mark on the uh, SFF community as a whole, you've got your Hugo nomination, so uh, you've definitely been recognized for your talent in the industry. From your point of view, uh, with your experience, where do you see the publishing industry going, say, in the next five to ten years?
0: God, we all hate this question. It's changing so fast. I mean, look, ebooks books are, are here to stay. They're not going anywhere. But on the other hand, I don't think mass market paperbacks are going anywhere. They're actually, mass market paperback sales have come back up. For a while ebooks were hurting them. I think you're going to see less hardbacks than you have been because price has become such a big issue for a lot of people. And so as people become concerned with that, I think you're going to see a lot of ebook pricing wars. Because right now, a lot of the big publishers price their ebooks in a way that almost prices them out of the market. Uh, they, they insist on pricing them a lot higher than what uh, a lot of people are selling ebooks at independently. And so, you know, it hurts sales. Which is an issue for all the authors. I think you're going to definitely see evolving forms of interactive novels. I did a novel for a company. I forgot about this. I did a, a review of a novel that actually it's a nonfiction book that Alan Dean Foster did. That had videos embedded in the book. Okay, oh, wow. videos of him like hunting wild animals or be, having adventures out with lions and different things, right? And he's talking about his travels in these narrative blocks and then you'd have this video that goes with it that tells part of the story i think you're going to see a lot more of that but i think you're going to see these these multimedia books out uh i think that's one thing that that hasn't been talked about a lot that's going to be coming and that's because of ebooks in particular i also think you're going to find younger generations read on ebook readers more and more and as textbooks become ebook only which i think is inevitable within the next 10 years i don't think they're going to be doing print textbooks anymore I think everybody's, they have to update them once a year already, which is expensive as heck. People get tired of the prices on them and they're going to push to get those textbooks so they can be uh, on ebook readers only. And frankly, a lot of schools are giving out laptops and e readers anyway. And I think that, you know, you could push new product to an e reader faster. So I think there's a lot of ways that that technology is going to revolutionize that we haven't even thought of yet in different aspects. And all of that will bleed over into popular, popular fiction and stuff too. In ways that we probably can't even imagine, like I think people will be subscribing to their favorite series and 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 pay a fee and have have you know the next you know the next Dresden book just drop right under their e-reader when it comes out, you know they don't have to go order it, you know they give permission and it gets pushed out there. Those kind of things. I see more Patreons pop it up every single day. I see Kickstarters several times a week. I myself have done four Kickstarters for projects. Okay. Part of my editing career is because I did those two Kickstarters that got some high profile and got me in the in the game. I think Kickstarters and Patreon and these kind of opportunities are a great way, crowdfunding in general, to find. I'm thinking of doing a Patreon myself because I need additional income to keep going. I'm just trying to figure out how how as an editor, primarily an editor, can I, how can I, you know, I, I've got to start writing more. Because how how can I push unique content to these people if I'm not? You know, if I'm not writing, you know, it's not. like I'm going to edit a. You know, hey, look, here I edited another page today. It's up for your display. <laughs> Who the heck wants to read that? That's a very small, limited audience, right? <laughs> Unless I really was eviscerating. If Michael Fletcher wants to send me anything, I can eviscerate his books. <laughs> you know. Oh wow, he really tore him a new one. Oh yeah. God, have you seen his latest Patreon man? This guy, he ripped him a new asshole. Holy crap, man. That was some serious editing there, man. I mean,
2: Maybe you could start a YouTube you could start a YouTube channel called uh Rip a New Asshole and just be yeah, you right. editing, well, it's editing editing people.
0: A, a spectator sport. It's like a you know <laughs> It's like a, an extreme sport. Extreme editing. Extreme energy.
1: <laughs> That's gr- a grandiose vision, definitely. I'd watch that. Right. I'd watch that. Well,
0: I mean, you know, I don't like to do that. Anyway. I mean, eviscerating somebody's manuscript. You know, you brought that up earlier. I got to be honest with you. That's not my goal. My goal is to make your manuscript better. If I eviscerate your manuscript, it's because it needs it. And even then, I try to do it gently. I try to do it. Find some positives to start bringing out if I'm doing it. because, look, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to make it better. I want the best book for both of us my reputation? For your reputation. Because I want to get a chance to edit more books. It doesn't mean no good to tear somebody's book apart unnecessarily. So I don't. So, you know, but that that's why I say it's kind of hard to come up with a Patreon that, that, that works with that. Unless I really do want to do that. <laughs>
2: well, I think honestly if you did a channel like that uh, I mean, I would subscribe to it. To just watch you. <laughs> <laughs> like, especially, just have have it open, like completely open, and anybody could send you something, and then you just eviscerate them.
0: Extreme editing. Today's guest, Philip Overbe. Right, Philip has sent me some total crap. <laughs> Let's look at it. Right and it w- now. and it would be. <laughs> this is a complete and utter piece of feces. In fact, it's so bad that when I tried to read it to my dogs, they grabbed it and ate it. I had to. out <laughs>
2: But I could blurb that. I could blurb that. I could, blurb say, I could say, uh, <laughs> Brian Thomas Schmidt says, utter piece of crap that he fed to his dogs.
0: So bad his dogs ate it first. <laughs> I think that would be kind of entertaining to a certain degree. I just don't know how many episodes you could do before it got boring.
1: <laughs> well, speaking of uh, extreme freelance editing, Brian, are you currently taking on new clients...
0: Yes, I am. I am. They can find me at, at my website, and uh, there's an editing services page. It's one of the links along the top, and you can contact me and and and, uh, and find all about it.
1: And then what other projects do you have coming
0: up uh, down the pike? Let's see. Well, I am writing an X-Files story for an anthology called X-Files Conspiracy Theories that's edited by Jonathan Mayberry. Nice. Yeah, I'm kind of excited about that. I have a novella in the Wars. The Cypher Wars card game, its at, it, it, they no longer make it, but it was really popular for a while. It's a space opera card game. I have a novella in that series that I ha- have coming out real soon. Um, obviously, the two more novels coming out. I have a, an Olympics slash sports science fiction anthology called Galactic Games, which is headlined by, by George R. R. Martin, Gene Wolfe, and a whole bunch of really cool people. Mercedes Lackey, so on and so forth. That'll be out in June from Bayon, um, doing uh, an anthology in the Monster Hunter universe with Larry Korea, and another one in the Joe Ledger universe for St. Martin's with uh, Jonathan Mayberry. So I've got a lot going on. And then I have a whole bunch of short stories that'll be coming out too.
1: Excellent. Excellent. So plenty of things to keep you occupied and things that we can keep tabs on. And then as far as uh, following you online, where should people uh, go?
0: BrianThomasSchmidt.net. That's B-R-Y-A-N. And it's Thomas has an S and Schmidt has an S. So... B R Y A N T H O M A S S C H M I D T dot net. And then you can find me on Twitter as Brian Thomas S. And um, I'm on, also on Facebook as Brian Thomas S. Chat with me if you want to watch me eviscerate somebody, edit them. I guess you can <laughs> ask. Maybe I'll do that too. Well,
1: Brian, it's been a pleasure to speak with you uh, just for the short time and to uh, get your insights into editing and writing in the industry. It's been uh, great to. To pick your brain for a little while. Uh, So thanks again for coming on the show and we wish you uh, the best of luck in all of your editing and writing and everything
0: that you have coming up. Thanks for the opportunity, guys.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Grim Tidings Podcast. Be sure to check us out online at facebook.com slash podcast, or on Twitter at GrimDarkFiction. We're available to download on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you like the show, please share it and leave a review. We'll see you next time right here on the Grim Tidings podcast.